0: Around that outline you'll see at the top there a picture and uh, I think the image there is uh, one of the most haunting and uh, wrenching images of recent years. It's a simple scene, a family at play uh, in the sun on a beach, a scene that no doubt will be replayed again and again uh, over the coming weeks as many leave the, the grey skies of Britain for sunnier spots all over Europe. Uh, for that week, that week that they've been looking forward to all year of of relaxation, of rest after the business and the busyness of a year past. But the scene uh, on the top of your outlines there is of no typical day or beach. It's Boxing Day 2004. It's a photo of a family on a beach in Thailand. Uh, Five members of the family you can see in the distance are swimming, oblivious to what is coming towards them. And there in the foreground you can see the mother yelling, running towards them, yelling at the top of her voice, screaming for them to run and run away quickly. In a few moments the wall of water that you can see in the picture in the distance will engulf the beach and everyone who stands on it. And over the course of the day, 225,000 people would be engulfed by a wall of water some 100 feet high that swept across the coastline of the Indian Ocean. Now, uh, if if you remember the scenes that uh, were beamed across the world uh, in the following days of the tsunami that hit uh, the Indian Ocean, you'll you'll remember lots of similar scenes to this, restful scenes of a world at play. Families frolicking on the beach, sunbathers basking in the sun, all oblivious to what is raging towards them. Now, as I uh, thought about this passage that we're looking at together today, I think we have the exact same sort of scene and the news of this vision is just as vital for us as the news of the tsunami was for those on the beach in Thailand that day. So what we have in front of us while again uh, in Zechariah initially looking impenetrable is of vital importance to us. All week uh, really as I've looked at this vision I've been looking forward to exploring it together because I think for, for most of us here this vision when we see it clearly is spectacularly good news. It's a vision that we need to have before our eyes if we are going to live fearlessly for God in the coming years. But for some, this vision seen clearly may well be the worst news you've ever heard. News that requires urgent and drastic change. And so this vision is vitally important to us. So with that in mind, let's pray and let's ask God to help us as we look at it together. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this vision. And we ask that you would do for us what you did for Zechariah, that you would lift our eyes up, that we would see the big realities of the future for this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at it together. Zechariah 6 and we'll start in verse 1. I looked up again. And there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white and a fourth dappled, all of them powerful. As uh, God lifts Zechariah's eyes up once more, uh, above the mundane, uh, above the normal of life, he sees these big realities at play. And what he sees is four chariots flanked with horses, charging across the land at full flight. Can you picture it? Now, compared to the previous visions that we've seen in Zechariah, the images here aren't that unusual. Chariots were the weapon of choice for conquerors from the 12th century BC onwards. Israel had seen their fair share of them, usually heading directly towards them. And that there are four of them isn't unusual either. All throughout Zechariah so far, this number four has come up again and again. In the first vision, it was four horsemen. The second, it was four horns and four craftsmen. The third, we had the four winds of heaven. And really, all throughout Zechariah, this number four has stood for a much bigger number, an all-encompassing group. A global picture is what we have here. In the same way that we speak about the four corners of the globe or the four points of the compass, what Zechariah sees here is not just four chariots but a vast army, a global army, on the charge with divisions of red and black and white and dappled grey. And do you see where they're coming from? Verse 1, they're charging from what is described here as two mountains of bronze. And once again our eyes are being pointed back to one of the key themes throughout Zechariah, the theme of the temple, this temple, God's dwelling place that that Israel was to rebuild. What we're pointed to here is the moment of Israel's glory, their pomp under Solomon when he built this temple for God to dwell in. And right at the front of the temple he, he set up two giant bronze pillars And so impressive were these pillars that he even named them. The south pillar was called Jachin, which means he establishes. The north pillar, Boaz, which means in him is strength. The temple and these pillars in particular were meant to show the strength and the stability and the sheer power of God's rule. This was his house, the very epicentre of his rule over the whole earth. However, the picture here of two bronze mountains isn't just a throwback to the glory days of Solomon. It's a look forward to the glory days yet to come. For these are no mere pillars, are they? They're mountains, huge mountains of bronze. This is no vision of a man-made temple. This is a vision of the heavenly temple, of God's throne room, of a huge army of horses surging out of heaven. Heaven is on the charge. Can you see it? This colossal picture. No weakness whatsoever. Verse 3, you see it? All of them powerful. Zechariah seeing this picture is jolted and and asks the question that we need to ask. Verse 4, he basically says, what on earth is going on? And in verses 5 to 6 we get God's answer. Verse 5, we're told that the four chariots are the four spirits of heaven. They're sent out of heaven to do God's bidding. They are his spirits. Ruah is the Hebrew word used here and essentially it, it talks about the very essence of something. The very essence of what heaven is all about is what is charging out in this army. And they are God's full winds. They are swift racing across the land. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever uh, had the opportunity of riding on a horse in full gallop but it, it's an amazing experience. It, it's only happened to me once and it wasn't deliberate. <laughs> I, was, uh, I had gone uh, visiting with some friends up to a farm and uh, we were all given a horse to ride on and uh, the owner of uh, the farm who was a, uh, an expert horse rider was leading from the front and we are all just trotting along happily. And if you ever trot on a horse you're feeling every bump and thud as it, it goes along but all of a sudden the the owner on his horse just charged off into the distance into a gallop. And my horse was obviously a friend of uh, his horse's and thought (laughs) this was his cue uh, to join. And so all of a sudden I am galloping across a field and unlike a trot, you feel nothing. It is so fast, the the sheer power of a horse at full stretch. That was until he reached a gate and decided he'd stop and I was the only one charging ahead (laughs) at that point. But the image here in Zechariah 6 is not of one horse charging. It is of a huge army of horses charging out of heaven at full pace from the very presence of God. Standing before him they have been. You see it there in verse 5. Who are they standing before? They're standing before the Lord. The Lord of where? Of the whole world. And so it makes sense as they charge out of heaven, they go to the four corners of the world, north, south, west, and I assume east. And everywhere they go, absolutely everywhere, God's rule is known powerfully. As I looked at this vision uh, this week, uh, I suspect we're left with another question at the end of verse 7. What will happen when this happens? What happens when this army charges out of heaven, when the very kingdom of heaven exerts itself over the whole world? Would well, you see the answer in verse 8? We're directed to follow the course of one of these chariots, the one with the black horses heading to the north. Then he called to me, Look, those going to the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. The angel calls out to us, or, or more literally, he cries out, he says, Don't miss this. And it would be easy to miss. Because it's over in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. What happens when God's kingdom breaks in on earth? What did you expect would happen? God wins. In a moment he wins. Total victory. From the surging power of this army to what in verse 8? Rest. Peace. God is at rest. Now to understand why he is at rest... We need to explore for, for a moment just why it is that we've been directed to the north, while we're following this chariot and these horses. And really I, I suspect it has to do with geography. If you know anywhere, anything about where Israel uh, was based, you'll know that really the only places you can attack it from are the north and the south. And by the time Israel was established, really most of the empires of the south were past their prime and so all the enemies of God's people and of God came from the north. And most recently and horrifically, it was Babylon. The north, that, as we saw last week when we saw God remove sin and idolatry from the land to Babylon, the north and Babylon in particular stood for everything that was opposed to God human self rule. But here in verse 8, we're told news from the north God wins. And if he has won there, he wins everywhere. His spirit is at rest. His work finished. In the same way, in the early chapters of Genesis, after he'd finished creating the heavens and the earth, as he looked over this wonderful world, he rested. Now he rests from his work of judgment. All his enemies are under his feet. And if you look at this rest in verse 8, we need to realise how different it is to our idea of rest. Back in uh, chapter 1, verse 11, we we were given an image of our world, that God looked over our world and he saw a world at rest and in peace. A world complacently disregarding God, comfortable, like the images of those on the beach in Thailand. Well, if they saw this vision of Zechariah, there would be no such rest. That's why it's so important for us. Because, see, the rest here in chapter 6 is no illusory rest of human comfort or self control. No, it's total rest. Rest that can only come about when God's kingdom breaks into our world. When He says, that, as He does in uh, the end of Revelation, that the old order of things, the old rule, has passed away. There's no more rebellion. No more dishonour of God, no more idolatry, no more crying or mourning or pain. Rest. As Zechariah looked at this vision, he saw what was going to take place in the future and we too do that here today. We look at an event that is racing towards us even now. And so important is this event that really this vision gets replayed again and again in scripture. Perhaps I think most helpfully for us right near the end of the Bible in in Revelation 19 where we are shown the one who leads this charge out of heaven. He has a name. He is the one called the Word of God. He is Jesus of Nazareth. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And really if you want to see this vision clearly, if you want to see that it is absolutely certain that it is coming, then you need to look back, back to the past event that it is grounded in, the very centre point of history. Captured for us, I think, most simply in our second reading in Romans 8:34, which says this, How certain is that vision, as certain as these things, that Christ Jesus died, that more than that he was raised and that even now he is at the right hand of God. We know the vision of Zechariah will come to pass Because we know Jesus Christ, who died, was raised, and even now sits at the right hand of God until all their enemies are under their feet. You see, in the past, God overlooked ignorance about his rule, overlooked ignorance about the fact that he is king of the whole world and not us. But because of Jesus, he now commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world and he has declared that, made it obvious by raising him from the dead. As I said earlier, this vision could be the worst news you've ever heard. If you are living a life without acknowledging the God who created you, not not even necessarily living a bad life, perhaps quite a good one, successful, upright, not as bad as many anyway. Well if you are living a self-determined rather than God-determined life then this passage says that God stands utterly opposed to you and your life and he has set a day when he will judge it. His judgment will come, the verdict will be instant and the sentence eternal. But if you see this vision clearly If you see it through the events of Jesus' death and resurrection and now his enthronement in heaven, it could in fact be the best news you will ever hear. Picture the scene again. This huge, powerful army charging towards you. Jesus the King leading that charge. And then just as they're about to reach you, just as they're about to come over the rise, he rides ahead of them. He comes to you and he offers terms of peace. Not to call off the charge. He won't do that because God is just. It will happen. It must happen. But these are his terms. His life for yours. He will stand in front of you as this army charges over the top. You hidden behind, untouched. And what happens when he does? What did you expect would happen? God wins it's easy to miss. It happens so quickly, in a single day, judgment comes, rescue comes. Romans 5 verse 8 I think captures it for us best. It says, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. Now if you're a Christian, you've heard that news a thousand times before. But keep this vision in your head this army charging at you. You are God's enemy, guilty, without excuse. He stands in the way. He dies. You're untouched. Why does he do it? He does it because he loves us, because he knows we are powerless, powerless to make amends, powerless even before our own enemies of sin and of Satan and even our own death. But in a moment, in a single day, he destroys them all and takes on himself this judgement. Now let me say, even if you have heard that gospel a thousand times before, if that news doesn't make the hairs on the back of your neck stand on end, then you need to see this vision again. His life for yours. For those of us in Christ, there is now no condemnation, says Romans 8. Now, as uh, we move towards a close, let me say that this vision of the future, which is grounded in the past reality of Jesus' death and resurrection, it is that past reality and this future vision that needs to shape your present, that should shape the way you live now and the decisions you make. Firstly, if you are here and you're not a Christian, by which I mean that you do not acknowledge Jesus is Lord, that he is king, you live a self-determined, not God-determined life, then this vision is terrible news. So let me say to you clearly, I beg you to accept his terms of peace. The Bible says that the reason this vision hasn't come to pass yet is not because God is slow in keeping his promise. It's because he's patient, not wanting any to perish but all to come to repentance. And as we sit here now, that is what God is doing. He is waiting patiently, holding back these horses who even now are straining in heaven to bring justice to this world. But he is patient. And just like the woman on the beach in Thailand, he is screaming out, run, run to Jesus, his life for yours. Now the remarkable thing about this uh, picture from Thailand on our outlines is that entire family survived. Somehow as the waters passed over them they they managed to survive and I put it down to this mother's desperate call. Well, My great hope for you is that you likewise would escape to Jesus. And finally to the church family, again this future vision and the past reality needs to shape the way we live even now. If you are seeing this vision clearly, seeing it through Jesus, then you have nothing to fear from heaven. You are in Christ. He died. He was raised. He sits at his Father's right hand and even now intercedes for you, his life for yours forever. You have nothing to fear from heaven. And if you have nothing to fear from heaven, what could possibly cause you to tremble here on earth I think John Stott puts it best. He says, we can therefore confidently challenge the universe with all its inhabitants, human and demonic. Who is he that can condemn you? There will never be an answer. And so as we finish, let me challenge you, if you are a Christian, to live like that. Live fearlessly. God has given you this eternal security so that you will live that way for him with much joy and with absolutely nothing to fear. Nothing to fear when it comes to losing face. He he gives you this security not so you can fit in, not so you can be respectable. He wants you to stand out. That's what we saw last week. He wants you to be the light on the hill because the stakes for our world are high. And so we are not to fear losing face in our family or in our workplaces, or in circles of friends as we hold uncomfortable views on the issues of our day, or as we raise our families differently. Or even as we grow old with joy rather than cynicism. When you see what's coming, when you see that Jesus is the king, it's it's his honour and not others that we seek. It's his reputation and not ours that we uphold. And we are especially not to fear losing face when it comes to calling upon others to run to him as we warn them of what's to come. I mean, think about it. If you were that mother on the beach in Thailand, would you have been embarrassed to yell out? Well, this is even bigger than that. We are not to become numb to the plight of our unbelieving friends and family who may well live good lives, but heaven is coming. And we we have nothing to fear when it comes to losing our lifestyle. If you see this vision clearly, then your goal is not to live a life just like those around you, but to have a lifestyle that reflects the hour that we live in. So don't fear losing things for the King, losing time. Be here every Sunday. Commit to meeting regularly with other Christians. Serve each other. It's only if you lose sight of this vision that those things would seem unreasonable. And don't fear losing money for the King. You need to think, if you're seeing this vision clearly, does the way I use my money reflect this reality? Whose kingdom am I building? If you're part of this church family and you're not giving regularly or generously, then I put it to you that you've lost sight of this vision. Don't forget, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. His life for yours. Live like someone who's escaped, like someone who has nothing to lose. And don't mishear this, as I talk about money and our giving, it's not a push for increased giving because we have some sort of debt to pay. We don't because there are many generous givers here. But I do it to shake those who have lost sight of this vision and perhaps to open up the way for more people to be standing on that beach calling out. And finally, don't even fear losing your future. See this vision rightly and it will change your future. It will be the vision and the king that sets the agenda for your life from this point on. I mean, think about the church plant that that we're moving towards. As hard as it would be for for some to leave the comfort of of a large church with all its programs for our children, all its resources, you lose a lot of that. Maybe even uh, you'd live nowhere near where the church plant is but you would have to sell your house and perhaps at cost. That would be a massive decision, wouldn't it? But put into perspective of this vision, it's a small one, isn't it? Or perhaps when we think about losing our future, it might be that your year next year will be shaped very differently. It might be that you end up taking off an extra day a week to be part of a ministry here or elsewhere. Or you join some sort of ministry, a leadership team of youth or Friday club or toddler group or leading a small group. Or it might even be that you're heavily involved in those things and you need to pull back because right now your immediate household is where that call to run to Jesus needs to be heard. Now I've just scratched the surface of the implications of this vision for us. But my hope is that this summer and perhaps the extra time that it might afford you will will give you time to reflect on the big changes and, and big calls that might be required. Risking in these areas and many others is not easy and the cost sometimes great as you lose face or lifestyle or even your future. But remember, you have nothing to fear. See the big reality that is at play in our world. And here, Paul's wonderful declaration in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray.